So let's start right away with the idea that, that nobody was expecting this earthquake in 1964. What does that mean? You know, in 1964, uh, it, though it's really only 50 years ago, we treated earthquakes uh, quite differently. I, I don't think I'm za- exaggerating to say they were. We were largely treating them uh, in Alaska as sort of random acts of God. You know, there we didn't. We understood that certain areas were prone to a lot of earthquakes, but we really didn't have an understanding of how often they might happen. And we had no concept of the the truly great earthquakes that only happen, you know, on a cycle of, uh, you know, hundreds of years. That that requires a geologic record that just had not even begun to be explored in Alaska. One of the things you talk about is is how this earthquake was pivotal in um, in both plate tectonics and earthquake science. Could you tell us about where plate tectonics theory was at the time and and how this earthquake helped really inform our understanding of plate tectonics? Sure. It, it's really a fascinating story. Uh, 19, the 1960s were a, a critical time in the world of geology and geophysics. Uh, we were moving toward uh, you know, large ideas that tried to synthesize why all these different observations that we see around the world how did they all fit together? We were we were sort of looking for you know a grand unified theory as the physicists uh, are, are looking for, and the ideas behind plate tectonics had been around for quite some time, um, and they were the kind of things that you know scientists would would talk about you know around the water cooler and say well you know, if that was true then maybe you know this idea over here and go yeah 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 that sounds good, but. Geologic history is a strange thing. I mean, Earth evolves on very slow timescales. We don't have a lot of opportunities to watch uh, geology in motion. Large earthquakes or great earthquakes are one of those very few opportunities where the world actually changes on human timescales. And the 1964 uh, earthquake provided the first uh, you know, um, great earthquake where you could look out, you could look at the land, you could see where it was before, you could see where it was after the earthquake, and go, hey, that's what that's what plate tectonics said it should do. So you had mentioned in an email to me that there's a very nice geodetic story here, which I'm particularly interested in. Um, and and geodesy, for folks out there not familiar with this sort of obscure term, geodesy is part of geodesy is measuring changes uh, in shape of the Earth's surface. So um, tell me a bit about the geodetic story of this earthquake. You know, the, it, it's really one of the, I think, one of the great sort of history of science uh, uh, topics of our time. You know, we, we talked a little bit about plate tectonics coming into being in the 1960s, but any of these processes are, are not smooth and cut and dry, and there's certainly a lot of controversy along the way. And uh, the geodesy story in the 1964 earthquake was absolutely pivotal in uh, people adopting, uh, coming around to the idea that, yeah, you know what? This really does seem to be explained nicely by this this subduction process that's been uh, you know so talked about recently. So we, we we talked a little bit about the strain 
the, the, the compression that is built up uh, over uh, many years when the land is not able to release uh, you know, the convergence between the, the two plates, in the case of Alaska, the Pacific and North American plate. And when that does, when an earthquake does occur, and that uh, strain is able to be released, that, that's something that we can measure on the surface of the Earth. And this is one of those very few times when the Earth uh, unfolds or you know, evolves on not even just human time scales, but really human time scale, seconds. And so one of the, uh, the, the probably the single most significant observation following the 1964 earthquake was the tremendous uplift and subsidence all across uh, southern, uh, the southern Alaska coast. The, the canonical uh, observation is, you know, barnacles, uh, uh, you know, barnacle-encrusted rocks that were now way above the tidal zone, and that was seen uh, in the more southern parts of the earthquake zone. In the more northern parts of the earthquake zone, the exact opposite occurred, and areas that had been right around sea level were now submerged, well, the easiest way to explain that by far is a fault that runs up and down, a vertical fault in the earth, or near vertical, and one side of it moves up in the earthquake and the other side moves down. That is a very, very simple explanation. So it's actually not this vertical uplift that proved, quote-unquote, uh, plate tectonics. There were two other observations that took a lot of time that were more subtle uh, that came around that helped uh, show that this idea of a giant fault just running 200 kilometers into the earth, this big vertical fault, was not the correct solution. Subduction, if you think about th this idea, one plate diving down beneath the other one, and they're, they're getting stuck on one another, and then earthquakes coming, this is a relatively complicated idea. But two things happened in the months following the earthquake, months and years. One is that people began to map the aftershocks of the earthquake. So as aftershocks unfold from a large earthquake, they effectively map out the fault plane. They map out that surface that actually ruptured. That took a long time uh, in 1964. There was no seismic network in Alaska. There were, there were two seismometers uh, operating in the state of Alaska at the time of that earthquake. The other part of this, which gets back to our geodesy story, is the horizontal displacement. So we now have, we've got two theories uh, in front of us that, we're, we're that are vying for competition. One of them is this, this deep fault that goes deep into the earth and motion uh, on either side goes up and down on this fault. And if that were the case, then there shouldn't be a whole lot of horizontal movement on the surface of the Earth. It should be mostly up and down. In the other explanation, the one that uses this new concept of subduction, uh, in that motion, when you have one plate uh, impinging on the other and getting caught up and sort of dragged down into the subduction zone and then releasing in a large earthquake, you have a very significant horizontal displacement. Okay, so now you've got, you know, in that sort of earthquake uh, scenario, uh, you have uh, all, all of the overriding plate, 
in the case of Alaska, all of the North American plates near the subduction zone during the earthquake, uh, rushing seaward uh, and and uh, making up for that you know that several hundred years of buildup uh, of strain. But that's a more that's a far less obvious thing to observe. Vertical uplift is easy. We, we talked about the barnacle encrusted shoals and the ghost forests, but if you go out and move the land side to side by you know a few tens of feet, what, what are the markers? There there are no easy visible markers. That requires surveying techniques. And of course, 1964. This is far before the GPS uh, revolution in the earth sciences. So over the course of months and uh, years following the earthquake, people undertook surveying campaigns and discovered that there had been tremendous horizontal displacement, horizontal movement uh, as well during this uh, earthquake. And it fit perfectly uh, the models that were being put forth for subduction. It is really that horizontal motion that was one of the one of the, uh, uh, the smoking guns, if you will. That yes, in fact, it is incontrovertible that the 1964 earthquake was caused by the subduction process. And this had not been observed before. We hadn't been able to measure this horizontal motion at a great earthquake before at a subduction earthquake. It had been challenging to do. Uh, in the 1960 earthquake in Chile, uh, there, there was a, 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 an equivalently large, actually larger earthquake. The largest earthquake ever recorded was just four years prior uh, in 1960. Uh, and because it was, uh, a lot of it was offshore, uh, it was not as easy to, this wasn't uh, so clearly observed. So, no. And it really takes, I mean, it, it takes a huge earthquake for this to be obvious. It takes you've got to be well into the magnitude 8s, uh, you know, closing up magnitude 9 before this is uh, observable uh, without the kinds of techniques that maybe exist today. These earthquakes don't happen very often. And the, the literature for decades focused on the 1964 earthquake because one of the things we didn't realize in 1964 is that we were about to enter a period um, kind of devoid of great earthquakes. We went for 40 years without uh, an earthquake of comparable size on this planet. So these are, um, though uh, great earthquakes are tremendously devastating, um, have the ability to instantly change you know, vast uh, of developed areas uh, in the world, um, they are sort of um, unusual scientific moments for understanding uh, how the world works. And they are treated, um, you know, as scientists, we, we live in this somewhat uncomfortable uh, world of, of really being able to use these devastating events to better understand the world. There's a yin-yang there that I don't think any of us are ever fully comfortable with, but we, um, they're, they're tremendous. they do provide tremendous data. And the 1964 earthquake was the last one for quite some time. Was uh, it was the last one until the Sumatra quake of 2004? Is that right? There really wasn't anything comparable between 1964 and the Sumatra earthquake in 2004. The other thing that made 1964 uh, uh, the the observation 
provided the observations that it had was that um, prior to about, well, prior to the early 60s, there was no sort of global seismic network. There wasn't a way to look at an earthquake and the way that its waves rippled out across the globe and use that in a way to sort of really constrain an earthquake. And in the late 50s, this idea came around for uh, what was called the Worldwide Seismograph Stations Network. Ooh, I might have botched that a little bit. So, <laughs> more or less. Uh, the WWSSN, uh, as it was known. And they began installing that in the early 60s. So it was not in place at the time of the 1960 earthquake in Chile. Okay. By the time that the 1964 earthquake happened, uh, it, the, this, uh, this network mostly existed. There were 70-some sites around the world, all running uh, the comparable, you know, the same equipment, all being managed under a unified framework. And it provided uh, the first opportunity to look at a, at a large earthquake with modern instrumentation or something closer to what we would use today. So that's a, the, the, on, the size, on the seismology side, there was a... a, a a data type, there were observations for 1964 that had never been possible prior to that, even just four years earlier. So as you pointed out, often major natural disasters leave a scientific legacy. For example, the 1946 Solution Islands earthquake, which was a magnitude 8.1, and which killed 159 people in Hawaii, led to the tsunami warning system that we have now. Um, what is the scientific or social legacy of this, the 1964 Alaska earthquake, in your view? I would say one of the key legacies, of the scientific legacies of the 1964 earthquake, or the, the cult arms, we, we all have this picture in our head of how tsunamis work, right? An earthquake occurs, massive waves are set up in the ocean. Over the course of the next several hours, these move at, at very fast speed, uh, across the oceans, uh, and then strike distant shores uh, with devastating consequences. This is a story we all know. It's the picture that we carry in our head of tsunamis. Right. What happened in 1964, uh, well, that, that did happen, uh, but there was another side to that that had not been fully appreciated, and that is the, the, the local tsunami or the near-field tsunami uh, and uh, and that is the, the, the aspects of tsunamis that strike very quickly. When you have a magnitude 9 earthquake or something you know, that large, what it does, it, it, it takes the ground, right? The, the ground is shaking tremendously, and it can do a lot of different things. It can have a lot of cascading impacts. One of the things that happened in 1964 is that in many of Alaska's uh, coastal uh, bays and inlets, the submarine soils, the, the unconsolidated sediments sitting there on the seafloor, when, when the earthquake shook, they let loose in underwater landslides. And those set up tsunamis, uh, for lack of a better term, local tsunamis, uh, that you know, didn't propagate across the oceans, they propagated you know, uh, a quarter of a mile or, you know, two miles to the other side of the bay, but struck with devastating consequences. It is, it's this impact, this, these local tsunamis that killed the majority of the people in the 1964 earthquake. 
And these are, um, they're a whole different ball of wax than the kind of tsunami that most of us carry around in our head. Um, they're, they're tremendously scary because they strike almost instantaneously. Um, the, in many of Alaska's towns, including Whittier, Valdez, Seward, uh, the haunting thing to me is that the first tsunami waves generated by these underwater landslides struck town before the earthquake was even over. Wow. So, you know, we're talking a minute, you know, a minute and a half into the earthquake. This was a four-and-a-half-minute earthquake. It takes that long for the rupture to actually happen. And while people are holding on, you know, there's no running for higher ground. You can't run. Uh, you know, that's when the tsunamis uh, struck. And I think it was understood that this was something that could happen in the world, but the 1964 earthquake drove home that there is a whole nother class of tsunami hazard that we need to be thinking of. This, this notion that, well, there's been an earthquake, so we will sound the sirens and we will send uh, you know, police down to the beach to evacuate people in an orderly fashion. That just, that's not going to happen ever. Uh, in this kind of uh, local tsunami uh, scenario. And 1964 is really what demonstrated that. Is there any way to prepare for that? You know, as a, as a scientist who, whose day-to-day life involves around, uh, 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 revolves around collecting you know, sophisticated data, uh, <laughs> it's taken me a long time to come around to the idea that the best thing we can do to prepare for such scenarios is education. Um, that has two components. One is smart building, right? Knowing where to build, uh, maybe making some hard judgments as communities and saying, you know what, we we really don't think we should be promoting development in this area right over here in town because all of our inundation mapping studies and whatnot have demonstrated that it's a death zone. Um, some Some towns have made uh, such decisions. I would point out uh, Seward, Alaska, which has uh, a spectacular piece of coastal uh, waterfront that was um, uh, that was inundated in the 1964 earthquake, and that's now a uh, public campground. Um, while that that's certainly hazardous during the tourist season when it's filled with RVs, and there, there's certainly considerable risk there. Um, I suspect in many ways that's better than de- building that up as, you know, five-story uh, waterfront property. So that's the kind of decision that uh, communities can make, but it, it requires education. and It requires us as scientists to make it uh, very clear uh, what the hazards are uh, without exaggerating it. We need to be honest. We need to have real uh, observations and good, solid scientific research to back up what we identify as hazardous and what we identify as not hazardous. And the other aspect of education is, is really as simple as knowing how to respond, you know, when the earthquake happens. Don't, don't wait. Don't go into the radio waiting for the public service announcement. Don't look for the ticker tape across the bottom of the TV screen. If you feel an earthquake that lasts for, you know, many seconds, oh, and uh, it... You can figure out later on where it was or what magnitude it was. If you feel it, if you're along the coast and it lasts for several seconds, go. So Alaska is 
especially compared to most of the rest of the U.S., it's not a heavily populated state. Um, what would be a reason to put resources into better understanding earthquake hazards in Alaska? Sure. You know, I, the fact that they are in Alaska um, shouldn't actually be a driving part of the, the motivation. Um, the real motivation is that they are rare events. These kinds of events, be it a magnitude 7.9 strike flip earthquake or a magnitude 9.2 subduction earthquake, they just don't happen very often. So you have the potential to make observations that are not, that aren't part of, uh, you know, you, you can't go out and just mount a study next week and say, hey, you know, I'm going to go try and learn about this, that, and the other. Um, some of those things uh, are only observable at the time or in the immediate aftermath of such an earthquake. I'll give you one such example. Uh, the 1964 earthquake, uh, we were talking a lot about this uh, uplift and downdrop and the way it played with sea level and tides uh, or uh, waters coming into places where they hadn't been and shores being uplifted above uh, water those leave a clear geologic record. And it was uh, following the 1964 earthquake, studies were undertaken in many of the tidal flats in southern uh, Alaska to look, to begin looking at this kind of historical record. Because one of the first questions you would ask is, hey, has this earthquake ever happened before? And if so, how often might it happen? And uh, so the observations that were actually made in 1964, you could say, well, here's what happens during an earthquake. Let's go look in the geologic record for a previous occurrence of that. And that's exactly what was done. And people took that notion and began applying it elsewhere uh, around the world. And one of the places that they did that was the Pacific Northwest. And so in 1964, there was no concept or understanding that the Pacific Northwest could have uh, massive subduction zone earthquakes. Because day to day, it's actually not an overly uh, uh, earthquake uh, 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 rich area. Um, but they, people began looking in tidal flats in the Pacific Northwest and they said, holy cow, we see these same kinds of observations that we've been getting out of Alaska. And that is how, part of how they pinned down uh, the earthquake that occurred in the year 1700 in the Pacific Northwest that was, you know, of the same sort of class uh, of earthquake. And it, it's that observation that led to the awareness of massive earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. That's one example of how the observations that you can only gather, you know, during these big events can be used for decades to come in other settings. One thing that you guys had said in the article was essentially about um, using Alaska, because Alaska has such frequent moderate-sized earthquakes, um, using Alaska essentially as a testing ground for earthquake early warning systems. So I am a firm uh, believer that Alaska is a, a great place to test out certain ideas test out certain algorithms because uh, we have the earthquakes uh, to test against. Four out of five earthquakes in the United States occur in Alaska. And that works out to, we have a magnitude five earthquake about every week. And so if you have ideas, if you have uh, 
you know, techniques that use that, that uh, specifically feed on larger sorts of earthquakes, um, there's a data set here that isn't really available uh, in most other places. One of the places where that has raised its head recently is in earthquake early warning. So earthquake early warning is this, uh, this concept or really some proven ideas that uh, we, we, we're, we may not be able to predict earthquakes, but when they do occur, if we can classify them extremely rapidly, we have the ability or the potential to notify people before the ground shaking actually reaches them. You know, if an earthquake is 100 kilometers away from you or if the epicenter is 100 uh, kilometers away from you, you might, you might have 15 seconds before that shaking uh, gets to you, or even uh, probably longer than that. And if we can notify people, then that gives you, the t- gives you a very short window of opportunity to prepare for it. And this, has been, this is something that's done in other places in the world. The most, uh, the most notable success of earthquake early warning was in the earthquake in Japan in 2011, Japan has a very sophisticated uh, earthquake monitoring infrastructure and had put time into earthquake early warning. And in places like Tokyo, there was a good solid half a minute of notification prior to that earthquake to people who were, or systems that were dialed into that system. Now, people look at that and say, well, 30 seconds, I can't even get out of the building that fast. What can I do? But there's actually a tremendous amount of stuff that can happen in a very short time frame. We, we live in an increasingly automated world with systems that communicate uh, together and whatnot. And so it, it, I think this is less about humans being able, you know, having time to get underneath their desks and more about uh, um, you know, utilities and transportation systems and things like this being able to shut down. 30 seconds of warning would do would have a tremendous impact on, say, airport runways or uh, uh, utilities, you know, uh, gas pipelines, things like this. Um, there's all sorts of things that can happen uh, that, that could be done to help uh, mitigate the impacts of a large earthquake. So long explanation, but these are ideas that are currently being uh, pursued very seriously in the United States, there's a very impressive effort underway in California and uh, efforts in Washington and Oregon to begin, uh, well, not to begin, but to, be, to begin uh, testing out such systems. There are some, uh, there's, uh, there is an earthquake early warning system in place in a test mode uh, in California. It's a very active area of research right now because it holds a lot of promise and uh, Alaska is certainly not part of that discussion uh, today we do have a different set of infrastructure here we are a, it's a massive land area to cover and we do have uh, less density of population and infrastructure which certainly brings uh, its own challenges uh, however earthquake data is earthquake data uh, wherever it's recorded and if you want to, I do believe firmly, if you want to test out, you know, decision-making algorithms, if you want to test out, you know, how, whether you detect earthquakes of type A, B, or C, or ones of a particular flavor, 
that Alaska, I think we're missing an opportunity if we're not testing those kinds of uh, ideas in Alaska. The only, uh, that's the only place where you're going to be able to do it in a live mode. Other than that, you're stuck sort of replaying historical data uh, through your systems. How far have we come since 1964 in terms of what we can observe? Should there be another event today? You said there were two seismic stations, two seismometers in all of the state of Alaska in 1964. Where are we today with our observing network? Yeah, we, we do live in a data-rich environment uh, compared to 1964, especially on the, the geophysics side of things. So there is now uh, a seismic network for, uh, across the state of Alaska. It really had its roots. I mean, it began the day after the 1964 earthquake, and it's evolved and changed in many different ways and uh, been managed in different ways, but uh, ultimately the fact that Alaska is seismically monitored dates back to that day. So now uh, if an earthquake, uh, when an earthquake occurs in Alaska, it's recorded on, you know, 400 or so seismic stations across the state. And, of course, we now have a a much uh, more robust global seismic uh, network as well. So that's a a huge data set that wasn't really, well, was not available in 1964. Uh, The other big change that I would point out is the introduction of GPS. So we we talked about the, the... very detailed survey work that was done following the 1964 uh, earthquake. That was a, a tremendously valuable and a, is one way of measuring the way the Earth changes. But, of course, the advent of research-grade GPS-based techniques has provided the ability for us to do that uh, you know, in, a, in a live sense and with far greater accuracy. There are now uh, you know, GPS stations across Alaska, uh, some of, uh, operated under a number of different facilities, but of course the Plate Boundary Observatory is one of the big ones. And those GPS stations observe not only the, the motion of large earthquakes, but fascinatingly the motion in between the earthquakes. So we now can actually watch that slow, steady buildup of strain as, as plates compress together, and as uh, you know, stress builds up across the fault, we see that year in and year out, that ever-growing sort of strain. And then when an earthquake does happen, we of course see that, uh, that relief. And the GPS is, gives us all three components of motion, so the, the vertical and the horizontal is all integrated into one observation now. So that's, I mean, that's, that was completely unimaginable in 1964. Is it true that we're still seeing the effects of the 1964 earthquake in the GPS network? That's right. It's a, it's a difficult story to tease out all the different things that are happening in the geodetic record currently observed with GPS. But after an earthquake like 1964, you have the, 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 the so-called co-seismic displacement, that stuff that happened during the four and a half minutes of the earthquake. But then you can, you can kind of imagine how all of the surrounding region needs to slowly adjust to that new uh, in- environment after the earthquake. Things aren't in the same place anymore, and it's kind of like a, a geologic settling, if you will. You know, everything has to just 
readjust a little bit, and that is still being observed uh, today from 1964. What do we still need to learn? You know, I, I think this is a story that uh, repeats itself for most large natural hazards, but as humans, our attention span is short. There was a tremendous uh, amount of activity following uh, in the decades following the 1964 earthquake. There was the massive uh, you know, scientific endeavor, but there was an equivalently large societal uh, evolution. For many years, uh, Anchorage, Alaska, adopted and actually had some of the most forward-looking building codes in the nation. When the, uh, the, the Trans-Alaska pipeline, the, the oil pipeline, was built in the 70s, it was decreed by uh, the state that it shall have you know, a dedicated uh, earthquake monitoring system built in from day one. That was a, a, a very progressive stance uh, to take, but it was informed by this massive earthquake just a decade prior. Uh, ironically, some of the large earthquakes we've had recently, I think, have actually done us a bit of a disservice. So a year ago, in, in January of 2013, there was a magnitude 7.5 earthquake in southeast Alaska. This is on the Alaska uh, you know, panhandle, an area that um, not everyone recognizes as seismically active. Uh, a magnitude 7.5 earthquake that, uh, to be honest, uh, did very little damage. The magnitude 7.9 Denali Fault earthquake, again, a massive earthquake, but it occurred in the Alaska Range in an area of the state that was not tremendously populated. And it also had, for an earthquake of that size, relatively limited impact. And these do us almost a disservice because we, we, we look at these and go, well, we've had magnitude 7 earthquakes and nothing bad happened. And we must be, we must be a pretty safe place. And I have to tell you, as an Alaskan, that, that kind of resonates with the, the, the toughness that we sort of rightfully or not sort of pride ourselves on as, as, a, as a state. And it kind of plays off of that. And it's, it's very, very dangerous thinking because a magnitude, you know, six in the wrong place tomorrow could, could be tremendously deadly. 